Good morning again to everyone. Merry Christmas. Um, a lot of people look at me kind of funny when I say Merry Christmas after se several days after the 25th, but it's still Christmas for several more days. My name is Wes Baker, and it's great to be here with you all again. Uh, it's been several weeks since I was here, and actually I went first to Goodwin Frazier this morning, and y'all weren't there. Um, and then I remembered, oh no, I'm supposed to come over here. Uh, so good to, good to uh, be here and be able to worship with you this morning. Uh, the scripture reading for the sermon is found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 8 down to verse 21, Luke 2, <clears throat> verses 8 through 21. Let's hear the word of God. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the word of the Lord. One of the things, one of the curious things or ironic things about, about Christmas is the fact that out of all of the different holidays that we celebrate, both religious holidays and civil holidays, out of all of them, this is, it seems to me, without a doubt, the most sentimental, or at least it's prone to be the most sentimental of all of the celebrations that we have. The whole world joins with us, in a sense, in celebrating Christmas. Those who have no Christian faith whatsoever, they join with Christians, in a sense, to celebrate this, but it usually tends to be about Santa Claus and... Uh, Rudolph's red nose and nice, beautiful, uh, snowy scenes and a, 
a fire in the hearth and uh, stockings and all, all of that sort of sort of thing. It tends to be the most sentimental of all of our, our of all of our holidays. However, I say that that is is ironic or curious because if you actually look at the way Christmas is described in the Gospels, if you read, for example, in the Magnificat, Mary's song, read that and notice the way she thinks about Christmas. For example, look, if you've got your Bibles handy, look in the, in the Magnificat, which is in the previous chapter, chapter 1, and look at verse... Uh, 49 and following, he sa- and we read there where Mary says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Those aren't words that we typically think of as going along with Christmas, about casting down the mighty and, uh, and casting down the rich and exalting the poor and exalting the weak. In fact, I'm not certain that this is true, but I've heard this repeated a number of times, that in, back in the time of the Reformation, many of the kings in Europe actually forbade the churches from singing the Magnificat because it was viewed as seditious. It was viewed as almost, almost treasonous or at least stirring up opposition to the kings and to the, to the authorities, which sounds quite ironic, I think. Or even consider the Benedictus, which is Zechariah's song. Look there, uh, it, also in chapter 1, Look at what he has to say, what Zechariah has to say in verse 68 and following. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised the mouth of his holy prophets for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. Notice there that we have the same kind of theme about, about exalting the weak and rem, uh, God remembering his beleaguered people. That's not the same kind of sentiment that we tend to get with at least the way Christmas is celebrated in our culture. In fact, this, this is actually a little bit of a, a crusade of mine. Think about how we confuse Christmas and Advent. You know, we Christmas actually starts on the eve of, of, of December 24th. But we're already decorating our houses and decorating our, putting out our trees. And we're already celebrating Christmas as early as, well, it used to be Thanksgiving, but now I think it's Halloween. And, and then, like my neighbors... They're already taking down the lights and everything by December 26th. Now, Advent traditionally is not a time of celebration. Advent is, in fact, a time of repentance. It's like Lent. It's a time of, of, of deep 
meditation. It's a time of repentance. It's a time of fasting. It's a time of reflecting on what a mess we are and what a mess our world is in and how desperately we need for Jesus to come. And then on December 24th, that's the day that we decorate the tree and put out the lights and prepare all of the festivities, and then we party for 12 days. Well, we've already got our partying done ahead of time, and we're tired of it by December 26th. All of that is, is just a, an example of how I think we've sort of lost sight of the way Scripture describes Christmas for us. It's not primarily uh, just a sentimental thing. Now, of course, when we think about the babe in a manger, when we think about the fact that God has come in the flesh and he's come to redeem us and he's come to forgive our sins, obviously there's something sentimental about that. Obviously, that should uh, affect us. That is, it should affect, uh, affect our, our emotions that's a, an important part of it. But the message of Christmas goes well beyond that. The message of Christmas is not just the message about how God wants us to feel better about ourselves and our relationship with him. The message of Christmas is a message about how God is turning the world upside down. This little baby born in Bethlehem, laid in a manger, this is the one who would go on to upset the world, to turn it upside down. He's David's son. He's Caesar's headache. But he's the world's great hope. So let's take a look at this passage before us this morning. Um, I think we could say it this way. The angels, the shepherds, Mary, Joseph, and if, if you catch nothing else in this sermon this morning, this is the point. The angels, the shepherds, Mary and Joseph, they are inviting you to find your hope in this baby born in Bethlehem, laid in the manger, to find your hope in him, but, not, but don't stop there, to find your hope in him and then to join them in announcing this hope to the rest of the world to join them, to join Jesus in becoming hope for the rest of the world. So let's take a look at this passage here. What we see in the passage that we just read in, in Luke chapter 2 is that Luke is explaining to us, Luke explains how this baby named Jesus, how he would go on to subvert both the religious elites in Jerusalem, the priests and all the authorities there, and in, in fact Herod as well, but also how he would go on to subvert the whole Roman Empire, how he would come to subvert the rule of one named Augustus Caesar. So let's, let's think about this story. Last week, I, I understand, y'all looked at the first several verses of the chapter that's where Luke sets it all in its historical context. He tells us that it was when the decree went out from Caesar Augustus uh, that all the world was to be taxed and all the world was to be registered. Uh, that, was not a, that was not a popular thing among the Jews. Acts chapter 5 tells us about 
an occasion when there was another census and it caused a huge revolt among the Jews. The Jews were always revolting from Rome about something. But what we find here is that this announcement takes place in the context. Luke, Luke reminds us, he says, this is while Caesar is on the throne. This is while Augustus is declaring himself to be the son of God, the true son of God. It's while Augustus is declaring himself to be the savior of the world. It's while Augustus is declaring himself to be the true Lord, the kurios in, in Greek, the true Lord of, of the world. And so while Caesar Augustus is making all of those claims about himself, Jesus is born. And who is this baby? Who is this Jesus? We read, uh, starting in verse 8, we read about the shepherds. The announcement has come, the, the announcement comes and is made to the shepherds. Uh, notice the humility of this. This uh, announcement about Jesus the King, this announcement about Messiah the Lord, Christ the Lord, it's not made in Rome. It's not made even in Jerusalem. It's not made in Herod's palace. It's made to a group of shepherds out in the field. Perhaps this is part of the theme of David that, uh, that this passage is, is seizing upon. Jesus is said to be born in the city of David. He's the son of David. Who was David? David was one of the first kings of Israel. David was the premier king of Israel. David was the one that all of Israel looked back to as their ideal king. And there were all these promises about how David's son, his greater son, would come one day and would assume his throne and would rule. And of the justice and peace that David established, that wouldn't even begin to compare with what his greater son would establish. So we have these themes of David. David, this is David's city, Bethlehem, the, the city where David himself was born and raised. And we're told that Jesus is born there. The announcement is first made to the shepherds, like David was a shepherd. But then these shepherds, after they, they receive the announcement from the angels, they hear the heavenly host, the, the choir of angels, the multitudes of angels that are singing and glorifying God and praising God for the birth of this child. Then the shepherds, they say, well, we've got to go see what this is all about. And so they make haste to go to, to, uh, to Bethlehem and they go to see this baby born in the manger, born, born in, the, in the barn. Now notice... Notice what the angel says about him. Verse 10, the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now notice, Christ is not his name. Jesus' name is not, that's not his first name. Christ, it's not even his last name. Christ is a title and it means the king, the anointed one. And so up to this point, we're not given his name yet. He's just announced to be Christ the Lord. Now think, as you think about this story, notice how unsettling this has to be to the Roman Empire. 
this would be clearly viewed as seditious by the Roman Empire. Caesar is the one who claims to be the son of God. Look at all the coins that he made for himself, and they all say on there that he's the son of God. He calls himself Soter, which means savior. Caesar proclaims himself to be the savior of the world. He claims that he's the one who brings grace and peace to the world. He claims to be the one who is the true kurios, the true Lord of the world. And here we have Luke announcing that this baby is Christ the Lord. He's a savior born in the city of David, the son of King David, and he is Christ the Lord. This is seditious. This is revolutionary material. That's why I say, uh, said a, mo- a moment ago that he's the son of David, but he's Caesar's headache. Now, this might seem pretty insignificant. It's just a little baby in a little town in a little backwater, really a little backwater village. And so is, is Augustus really going to be that concerned about this? Well, Jesus was, was uh, their Trojan horse. Jesus' birth was quiet. There wasn't a lot of noise ab- about it. But Jesus' birth was an explosive event that turned the whole world upside down within just a few centuries. Caesar would come to know exactly who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, he is the true Lord. And in fact, the whole Roman Empire would come to the point where they would come knocking on the door of the church and say, can we come in? Sorry about that little misunderstanding when we crucified Jesus, but now we'd like to come in. So notice here, first of all, notice that this good news about a Savior born in the city of David who is Christ the Lord, notice how seditious and subversive that would be understood to be by the Roman authorities. Jesus comes And Luke is making these claims, the angels made these claims about Jesus. But it's more than that. It's not just that he is, Jesus is becoming a headache for Caesar. Notice also that the Jewish elite of the day, they were corrupt and they were in collusion with Rome. Notice here, how, how Luke addresses specifically that issue as, as he tells us this story. When, when the angels come and the choir of angels is singing, we're told that the glory of the Lord shone around them and they began to sing. Now, what do we know about choirs of angels in the Bible and what do we know about the glory of the Lord showing up in the Bible? That's supposed to happen in the temple. It doesn't happen out in the field with a bunch of shepherds. It's supposed to happen in the temple. Read Isaiah chapter 6, for example, where Isaiah sees the glorious vision of God on his throne, but then the host of angels that are there singing and worshiping God and glorifying God. The glory of the Lord is supposed to be in the temple. So when Luke tells us that this took place out in the field, it didn't take place in Jerusalem. 
Luke is saying, listen, pay attention. The glory of the Lord is not being revealed to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. The glory of the Lord is not being revealed to the priests in the hierarchy and, or even to Herod in Jerusalem, in the temple. Rather, he's being revealed out in the field. He's being revealed to these shepherds. So, so really, Luke is telling us a message that is subversive both of the Roman Empire, but it's also subversive of the Jewish religious authority of the day. Jesus isn't quite what they expected. And I would suggest to you that what we see here is that he's not quite what our culture expects when we talk about Christmas. Christmas, obviously there's sentiment involved in Christmas, and well, there should be. But if we stop there, we're missing the whole point. We're missing the point that this child came. This child was born. God himself came in the flesh, and he came to turn the world upside down. He came to turn your world upside down. We, I, I don't want to get off into the weeds of, of all of this, but we live in a culture that has made some very distinct decisions over the past decades and even a couple of centuries. We've made some very distinct decisions about what we think of, about God and what we think about the church and what we think about Jesus. And those decisions, especially in the past few decades, those decisions that our culture has made, we're now having to pay the bill for that, for those decisions. I don't know if you, you noticed, but just this last week, the, it was a, a big thing in the, made, made it in the news in ser at several points, um, that the U.S. has just surpassed all the other countries of the world as, as having the greatest number of children being raised by single moms of anywhere in the world. These decisions that our, our culture has made, Western culture has made, secular culture has made in the last, last few decades, these decisions, we're now beginning to have to pay the bill for them. Uh, no doubt you're quite aware that Western culture, particularly the United States, we've got, uh, we've, these decisions we've made have left women and children more vulnerable than ever before. They've, it's given us a massive uh, uh, opioid drug, drug crisis. We can look around at our culture, the, the, the culture that secularism, it promised us one thing, but it's giving us something very different. Jesus came to turn this world upside down. There are some distinct similarities. There are differences, but there are some di distinct similarities between the world of the Roman Empire into which Jesus was born, the most violent and corrupt world known up to that point. There are some distinct similarities with our world today. But we're and, and we're paying the bill for that in our day. But the thing that we've got to see about Christmas, about the birth of Jesus, about this baby in Bethlehem, 
is that he came to turn the world upside down. You see, it's, it's, not, just, it's not just that he came. Zechariah talked about the forgiveness of sins. Obviously, that's the beginning of all of it. He came to forgive our sins. But don't interpret that as he came so that you can feel better about yourself and your relationship with God, full stop. He came to forgive your sins, he, but he goes on from there to transform your life. He's not content just for you to feel better about yourself and to feel better about God. He wants your life. He wants to own your life, and he wants your life transformed. And as you think about, think about what a mess this world is, a whole bunch of us would have to say our lives get pretty messy at times as well. Every single one of us, in, in some way or another, is, is affected by all of these things going on in the world. And if, if it's not directly affecting your marriage or your kids or your, your, your very own life, it's affecting those around you. It's affecting people you know. It's affecting your neighbors. Jesus came to forgive your sins, but Jesus came also to transform your life. And not just to transform your life, but to use you then as the instrument to transform this city of New Braunfels, to transform this world. Now, maybe you're thinking, huh, fat chance there, changing, how in the world can this world change? Well, people said that about the Roman Empire as well in the first century. But it didn't take long as Christians grasped this message of God in the flesh, Jesus coming not just to forgive your sins but to transform your life and to transform the world. When the early church grasped that message, it was the Tro uh, Trojan horse of the day. It was a message that turned the world completely upside down. If you're new to, to hope or new to the, to the Christian faith, please don't hear us say, and this, as, as I travel around a lot of different parts of the United States, and I talk to a lot of different people, I, a lot of folks who aren't Christians hear the church saying two things. Number one, accept Jesus so that you can feel better about yourself. Now, I'm not saying that's what we say, but that's what they hear. Accept Jesus so that you can feel better about yourself, and come join us so that we can be more important in our city. That's not the message that hope is proclaiming to the city. That's not what you're here for. At least we hope not. Why do we call this place hope? Because, it, because we're proclaiming hope to you, to your family, and to the whole city of New Braunfels. Jesus, this babe born in Bethlehem, wants to turn your life upside down, or maybe we should say right side up. And he wants to turn this city 
right side up. In Acts chapter 17, there's a passage there where Paul is in uh, Thessalonica. And there he's arrested as he tended to, to find himself uh, arrested frequently. He's arrested, and they say about him, listen, he's come here to this city, and he's proclaiming things contrary to the decrees of Caesar. He's the, he's the one who has turned the world upside down, and he's come here too. We want the city of New Braunfels to say that about us. We want the city of New Braunfels to say, those people at Hope... They're the ones who have turned things upside down, or we would say right side up. They've come proclaiming things contrary to the decrees of secularism. But very soon, they'll see that the message that we proclaim of this Jesus born in Bethlehem, this message is hope for marriages Hope for our children. Hope for the, the women and children who have been left vulnerable by, by our, our secular ideology. Or the men who have been left, especially young men, left aimless and, and hopeless with no clear idea of what in the world their life is all about. We want this city to hear this message we want young families to hear about hope. We want young women to hear about hope, the hope of Jesus. We want young men to hear about hope. We want this whole city to hear the message of hope of this child born in Bethlehem. Now, this is hope for you. If you maybe this is your first time here. Maybe you're, you're considering the Christian faith for the first time. This is... This should be an amazing message to you because it's about how you can be forgiven but not just left there forgiven. It's about how your whole life can be transformed through the power of Jesus, this baby born in Bethlehem, and then how you can be used by God as an instrument to transform the whole city. Now, Jesus, how did, how did he accomplish all of this? He, he, I've stated that, he, that his message was seditious. I don't mean seditious in the sense that Jesus came as a rabble rouser or Jesus came raising an army. Notice, even in the midst of this, of, of this census, the Roman census, that, that stirred up the Jews over and over again to revolt, notice what Mary and Joseph are doing. They're going and they're submitting they're being peaceable. They're pious Jewish believers, and they go and they submit. Jesus didn't come to revolt in any typical sense. Jesus didn't come to lead a violent revolution, but he did come to, to lead a revolution. Jesus conquered the world by giving himself as a sacrifice. Jesus conquered the world by offering himself on behalf of the world. And he calls us. He calls us to embrace him in faith and to join ourselves to his revolution. Just as he gave himself 
to purchase the salvation of the world. He's calling upon all of us to give ourselves to make that salvation known to the city of New Braunfels. Would you like to see your own life transformed, your family transformed, your marriage transformed? Would you like to see your city transformed, your whole world transformed? It's going to come. It will happen as we embrace this Jesus born in Bethlehem, as we embrace him by faith, and as we follow him on the path of self-sacrifice to serve our world, to serve each other, to serve our city. Then we'll see the transformation. We'll see the, the revolution accomplished. What better day than the first Sunday in Christmas? What better day to embrace this child born in Bethlehem and to embrace his mission here in the city? Let's pray. Father, how humbled we are to think that you, the God of the universe, the creator of the ends of the earth, would stoop down, would become incarnate in the person of Jesus, and then would give yourself as a sacrifice for the world. Oh, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his message that you are not content to leave us in our mess or to leave this world in its mess, but that you've determined to transform us, to transform our world. Oh, Lord, use us as instruments of transformation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.